So we're about to introduce you now to James Foreman, Jr. James Foreman, Jr. is uh, one of our brilliant thinkers in the society. He's a professor of law at the Yale Law School. Uh, his latest book, uh, his book is Looking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America. And as you know, we've covered uh, the Michelle Alexander book, The New Jim Crow. This is like a book into that uh, in a fascinating way, unlocking things that many of us are really afraid to address, deal with, and talk about. And James Foreman, Jr., welcome. It's good to have you on the program with us. One of the things, I'm going to just start this way. There, one of the things you do in this book to me is extend and deepen the complexity of mass incarceration in America, what the roots of that are. We can look at what happened under Richard Nixon and know clearly those are the roots of mass incarceration, of going after black folks, which he said was very clearly that he wanted to do, which he did, and the, and the war on drugs. But you also look at, in this book, in, the, in depth, at the, the, the pain inside the black world at that moment, uh, post-segregation, riddled with violence in, in the poorest communities, people not showing which way to go, heroin addiction rising. But you do so without recrimination. You do so with a kind of a passion, without judgment. So talk about the, the, your approach to this and, and what brought you to this. Well, thank you for asking. I mean, I... I guess I would say, first of all, I'm not, I don't know if you have a friend who, when you go see a movie and you go leave the movie, or maybe you're this person, and somebody says, <laughs> how'd you like the movie? And then you say, well, it was a pretty good movie, but I'm frustrated because there were no black characters. <laughs> right. I'm that person. <laughs> I am too, yes. So, <laughs> right. So I'm that person. I don't like it in film. I don't like it in history, which is what I'm doing. I don't like it in law. And so that's like my, my starting off motivation is I knew that I wanted to write something that had African-Americans at the center of the narrative. So that was number one. And then I guess on this topic particularly, for me, it really grew out of experiences that I had in Washington, D.C. I went to become a public defender in D.C. in the 1990s, and I went because I saw it as civil rights work. We didn't use the term mass incarceration then, but the sentencing project had already issued reports showing that one in three black men, young black men, were under criminal justice supervision. And in Washington, D.C., in the 1990s, the numbers were one in two. And so I knew for me that this was civil rights work. And when I got to D.C., one of the things that I saw was how complicated it was in this sense. I mean, I had a case, and I talk about this in the book, but I had a case, one of my earliest cases, I was in juvenile court representing a young man by the name of Brandon, and he was on a gun charge and possession of marijuana, small amounts of marijuana. And I was asking him from, to be released to his family. I had letters from his parents, letters from his social, letters from counselors at school, his teachers. It was his first arrest. And the prosecutor, who was African-American, was asking for him to be locked up. And Brandon's African-American. I'm African-American. The prosecutor's African-American. And the judge is getting ready to rule on the case. And he leans back. And he looks at Brandon, and then he says, Listen, young man, Mr. Foreman has been telling me that you've had a hard life and that you have potential. Well, let me tell you, I don't doubt that, son, but let me tell you how hard it once was. And then the judge starts to go into a story about segregation and Jim Crow and then the civil rights movement. And he says, People marched and fought and died for you to be free. And that freedom is not supposed to include running and thugging and drugging and embarrassing your community. So, no, son, I can't give you a second chance, and he locked him up. And after I left court that day, I had to reflect on the fact that I had viewed myself as the civil rights worker in the story, but the judge clearly 
invoked the same history, invoked Martin Luther King of all people, and reached the opposite conclusion. So that told me that there was a story that needed to be written about what was happening in black America over the last 40 or 50 years with all of its complexity and nuance and pressures. What was going on to help produce a system where many African Americans were like this judge and were very tough on crime? And that's what I wanted to write about. So I can remember, uh, as I was reading your book, the, the, reflecting on the shows we did here in the early 90s uh, mm-hmm. on the program when we started out in 1993. And at that point, there was a hue and cry in Baltimore, as you write about it in D.C., and as you write about it in New York and other cities, Detroit, as you write about it in this book, um, where there was a hue and cry, where people were upset about the drug use, about the drug dealing, about the fear of their corners, about the murder rate, and wanted something done. And, and, but there, all the contradictions seemed to rise to the fore then, because you write about this is a, this is a, this is a moment when uh, many black leaders saw that white policemen weren't doing anything to help people in the black community, uh, except for except for brutalizing people. There was no kind of crime prevention going on, so people were upset. They wanted more. Uh, on the other hand, you had conservative leaders who were talking about lock them up and throw away the key. And there was this confluence of events that you that you kind of talk about, especially between the lives of certain people, like David Clark, who was the city councilman in, in D.C., and Hassan Jeru Hafmed and Jerome Jaffe, and others, where all this kind of, in a strange way, this confluence of very different people came together. I think that's exactly right. So if you look at, you know, you talked about David Clark and, and the 1970s, and then we can talk some more about the 1990s. But in D.C., in 1975, we get a majority black city council. It's the first locally elected city council. Marion Barry is on it, most most famously, you know, who will go on to become mayor. And that council came into effect at a moment when crime in D.C. and nationally had been rising. So in the 1960s, the homicide rate tripled in D.C. It doubled in a number of other cities, including in Baltimore. Heroin addiction, you know, my students today don't really know. They know about crack, but when I, they don't really know about heroin in the 1960s. In Washington, D.C., in the late 1960s, they were testing people at the D.C. jail to see if they tested positive for heroin. And in 1967, 3% tested positive. In 1968, it was 45%. I mean, that's an epidemic. And so this new city council with all of these people who came out of the civil rights movement, Right. Four or five of the people on the council were in SNCC or in Southern civil rights organizations. And one of the things they want to do is they want to protect black lives. Right. Exactly what you just said. For so long, black life has been unaddressed, unprotected by the state. Right. The police never come when you call. That's why African-Americans throughout the early 20th century, everyone had a gun in the South because you couldn't count on the police to arrive at your home. So these folks come into power, and they didn't call it Black Lives Matter, but in a way you could. That's why chapter two of my book is called Black Lives Matter, because they are determined to make black life matter. As Jill Leovi, the writer for the L.A. Times, says, make black life expensive. And the way they do it, one of the ways they do it is by ramping up policing, telling them to go to the black communities, to be more aggressive, to clear the corners, as you're talking about, and also... They ask for longer sentences. And so that is exactly what you say. It's this kind of confluence in events. And it's also a reaction to racism. 
one of the early debates in D.C. was whether to decriminalize marijuana. We know now what marijuana criminalization has done to black America, right? The number of lives lost, jobs lost, people can't get public housing. It's amazing to think about the fact that in 1975, a majority black city council had the chance to decriminalize marijuana, and they chose not to. But they didn't do it because they didn't care about the black youth in their community. They cared. They said, we care about you, but our black children cannot afford to be getting high. We don't have the extra resources of the white kids in the suburbs. We don't have money for drug treatment. We don't have jobs at the disposal if, a, if your record check comes up dirty. No, we have no margin for error in black America. So that's why you can't get high. That's why we're not going to decriminalize marijuana. So, so much of my book is about these kind of moments where you can understand the motivations and yet you can look back and see what a terrible impact they've had over time. So here we are in a historical moment coming at the end of, of legalized segregation. The war on poverty half steps through the community, but actually does some decent work despite what some conservatives have said about it. Um, and and you're, you're in this moment where black political power is just beginning to feel itself in terms of the electoral world of America. But as you write about, people were, and you, and you really lay it out in, in, in all through the book, that, that people were worried about the state of the community and black-on-black crime. You point to the articles that took place in the Howard University paper and every other black newspaper in America about something that had to be done, Jesse Jackson's words. Eric Holder, when he was the U.S. attorney for in Washington, D.C., the deputy U.S. attorney in D.C. So, but it, that, that at that moment when people were calling for protection and calling for change and end to violence and drug dealing, no one made the connection between that and how it played into the hands of mass incarceration. That's true. And part of the story is that people didn't know at the time, right? This is a big part of this book is about how you make a decision in 1975, let's say, or 1980, 1985. You don't know what's going to come next, right? So first of all, the term mass incarceration didn't exist until late 1990s, around 2000. You know, as Michelle Alexander writes about, the civil rights community hadn't really picked up on this as an issue until pretty late the sentencing project issued their first report, one in, three, one in four black men under criminal justice supervision. That was in the late 1980s. So in the 1970s, it wasn't as much of an issue on people's mind, in part because the numbers hadn't you know, gotten so high. And what you see in the book is how people make a decision and then later events show how bad that decision was. For example, marijuana decriminalization. At the time, the people who wanted, who opposed decriminalization, they said, listen, not many people are going to jail for possession of marijuana. They might get an arrest, but it gets dismissed. Maybe they get a second arrest, they get probation. So it's not going to be that big of a deal, right? It's not going to destroy our community. That was the argument from ministers, from uh, people like Doug Moore, black nationalists on the city council who opposed decriminalization. The problem is later, we passed other laws that made it impossible for you to get a job, make it public housing, student loans, right? But all of those things weren't true in 75, nearly to the same extent. So that's one of the tragedies of the story is you can see how you, you said, you know, it wasn't on their minds. And it's kind of understandable that it wasn't on their minds, right? It wasn't the immediate crisis they were facing was addiction and crime 
and polls showing that most black Americans were afraid to leave their houses at night. And so they responded to that crisis and they responded to it with the thing with the way we respond in this country to crises of these sort, which is law enforcement. So in, in the process of that, one of the things that also becomes clear here is that people really were groping with how to handle a problem that they, people could not put their hands around. Um, you talk about the police, both white police, but you also talk about the newly enfranchised black officers and also the anger that many black officers had about um, criminals inside the black community. Uh, and you and you and you spend a great deal of time talking about Bertrell Bertrell Jefferson, who later became a head of the D.C. police. So that's a complicated story too. And I think one again that makes it it's it's when you delve into it as deeply as you started to in this book, it's a very difficult thing to talk about. And I think something has to be explored with some sensitivity about the world of the black officer, um, his her relationship to the community, um, and why it's so complex. I think that's right. And I have a chapter on it. Yes, you do. But really, a book could be written on that, right? And so, you know, if you have any listeners out there that are graduate students or, you know, young professors starting out, when people ask me, you know, what's what's left? What did you encounter that you didn't write enough about this topic for me? You know, I try to get into it deeply, but but I but you need I needed more than a chapter to do it justice. So so there's a book to be written for somebody out there. Maybe I'll do it one day. But but, but maybe to, somebody to, be... to interrupt, James, for a moment. But what you, it was only a chapter, but you but you tackled it, which is something I've not seen tackled in the way. Yes, that you said no, and I, and I appreciate that. And and so one of my big takeaways from this is that we've never been clear. And and this is a chapter that I've. It's really my favorite chapter in the book, actually, because. I didn't know anything in there until I started researching in many ways. For, you know, back in Reconstruction and early 20th century, I mean, it was impossible to imagine black police officers. Well, there were some in Reconstruction, but then after Reconstruction, as part of the kind of white, you know, racist takeover of the South, they got rid of them. And then it was, right, in a Jim Crow world, it's hard to imagine black officers. But African-Americans were lobbying and advocating for black officers early on. I have Martin Luther King Sr., in the 1940s in Morehouse College giving a speech where he says, we need a black officer in Atlanta. They're just asking for one. Mm-hmm. There's a picture of a protester in the book. He's marching in front of the Georgia State Capitol, and his sign says, 105,000 Negroes need one Negro police. Right. So they want to get inroads into this police force. But what's interesting is no one is really clear, and we're still not clear, on what difference we think black officers are supposed to make, right? So some people said black officers are going to make a difference because they will actually fight crime hard in black communities. Remember, this is a time when white officers were ignoring right black crime. Uh, that was just one more dead black person, and they didn't say black person, but I won't use the word that they did say. So that's one reason. But then later in the 1960s, we start to get another reason, which is this idea that the black officers will be less brutal, right? There'll just be less police brutality um, when we have black officers. And those rationales in some ways could, you know, be consistent, but also could be a little inconsistent with one another. But here's here's the thing. No one asked the people who were becoming the officers, 
what they thought, what difference they were going to make, right? So we have all these civil rights leaders, people like Martin Luther King Sr. giving these speeches, but the people that are taking the jobs, and this is the argument of my chapter, they're taking the jobs by and large because these are good jobs, right? Many of them are veterans coming back from various wars. Others aren't, but they want to work. They don't necessarily have this civil rights orientation that the leaders have. And so my kind of, the the end result of this for me is that I believe we need more black police officers in every force in America. But I think the reason that we should have them is because black people deserve their fair share of good municipal jobs like we deserve our fair share of all jobs in this country. But we shouldn't argue for them because we think they're going to change policing. That's just unrealistic. It's unrealistic. I mean, you, you cite this, I think it was a 1962 study, if I remember right. Yeah, 1966. 66 from University of Michigan. Yes. Which is very telling. And I really, I mean, I, I tried to look that up. I didn't have a chance to kind of read the study, but I really want to do it. Um, just because it raises issues, I think, that we as a community have to wrestle with. It does. I mean, this study basically showed they, they, they interviewed a lot of officers, black and white. And one of the things that I found so devastating about the study was how negative the attitudes of the new black officers were towards the black communities they were being assigned to police. This was right at the beginning, right when, you know, people thought black officers were going to make such a difference. But some of the comments, you know, I can't even repeat on the air, but a lot of it was, you know, they're they're dirty, they don't take care of themselves. I mean, it really, so many of the comments, they sounded like stuff that like someone from the KKK could say about black. But this was black people talking about others. And that for me is connected to one of the other points in my book, which is I talk a lot about class. You know, we don't talk openly about class in the black community enough. We talk about it, but we need to talk about it more. And because one of the things that we've seen in the mass incarceration era is, yes, everybody, you know, people have, everybody has a cousin, everybody has somebody in their family. But overwhelmingly, the problem of mass incarceration, of prison going in particular, has been something that has been visited on the poorest, least educated African-Americans in our community. For example, let me just give you this one number. A black person who doesn't graduate high school has their likelihood of going to prison has gone up tenfold since the 1960s. For a black person who's in college or graduated college, it has not gone up at all. Now that was that was a stunning stat um, that 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 I read um, in your book. And, you know, one of the things I think is important to kind of say here for a moment, take a step back, is this: everything you're saying here, everything you're positing in this book, positing in this book, um, does not, should not, and does not leave racism, institutional, deeply personal racism, political racism, the war on drugs off the hook. It's just broadening an understanding of why we are who we are. Well, I'm glad you said that. That hasn't come up yet in our conversation, so I'm glad you brought it up because it is a very important point to me. I say early and often in the book uh, the role of racism. I have it in the introduction, and I want to be clear. Racism plays itself out in lots of ways. 
One is you have a whole set of actors in America who aren't don't have the motivations we're talking about, right? I'm talking about African Americans in this book. I'm not making claims about, you know, what it is that somebody going on in another part of the country who's not from the black community, kind of what they were thinking at this moment in time. And in many cases, they were either overtly racist or implicitly, you know, implicit bias, right? They just, they don't feel the pain of a black American in quite the same way. So all that is going on. But racism plays itself out in another way, too, that's really central to my book which is that all of the decisions that the black decision makers that I'm writing about are making are making constrained by racism, right? They inherit segregation and inequality and a wealth gap and dysfunctional, non-functional schools. They inherit that reality because of a history of racism in America. And then making matters worse that racism constrains their actions going forward. One of my main arguments in the book is that all of the black actors that I write about, almost 201, argued for more policing, argued for more prosecution, sometimes argued for longer prison sentences, but they also argued alongside that for better schools, job training, mental health, drug addiction, parks and recs. They argued for what John Conyers called a Marshall Plan for urban America. But they didn't have the power to enact that, right? Because African Americans don't run Congress, right? We, we, we don't have that level of political power. And your point about racism, ongoing racism in America makes it less likely that our demands, our claims, be heard by that larger power structure. So black people had what I call an all-of-the-above strategy. We wanted to throw everything at the problem, police, prosecution, prisons, jobs, housing, the whole nine. But we asked for all of the above, and we got one of the above, which was law enforcement. So before we conclude, I want to get this one call, a caller in here and also a final question before we let you go. I know you got another interview coming up. 410-319-8888. And also remind our listeners where you can see him tonight at the University of Baltimore at 7 o'clock. Uh, Sadiq, you're on the air. Welcome. Yeah, peace and blessings. Good morning to good, both of you. Good morning. Good morning, Sadiq. This is an excellent conversation. Um, I do a lot of work in the community uh, through my organization, Millionaire Manners Academy. And um, this conversation really, really conjures up so many different thoughts. But I guess I'll just start with a comment or a couple comments and end with a question. Uh, my first comment, I think, is just uh, the conversation you guys just brought up around it being unrealistic to expect those, um, those African-Americans who would join law enforcement to single-handedly change things. Um, I, while I don't think it's unrealistic, I think it's, I think it's accurate that some of, sometimes our expectations of these individuals, um, because we haven't vetted them properly at the community level, uh, might lead to sort of unrealistic expectations. And I sort of compare it to um, the idea of, of, of supporting black businesses. And my whole thing is like, if, if we don't do our due, dil- our due diligence around these businesses, these businesses might be just as detrimental to the black community as an Asian-owned business, as a corner store or carry-out, uh, you know, or, or any other sort of like white-owned business. If we don't do due diligence and say, okay, hey, we want to know some of the ideology, we want to be very specific and very strategic about who we place in these positions, then our conditions are just going to remain the same. So you really made me think of that whole, again, you know, support black businesses. Um, the other thought that came to mind as well was around the fact that until – we have viable alternatives 
to these systems that were not built with us in mind, again, as African-Americans, we're going to continue to, again, have good people with good intentions who are, you know, by all accounts are somewhat the minority. We're going to continue to have these good people swallowed up by these institutions that are, again, built upon the foundation of systemic racism where folks just don't see our humanity and our equality. Same thing we see happen in politics. You'll see this lone actor go in with, you know, we saw it, at the, it with the highest office in the land, uh, with POTUS, our last president. But we see these folks go into these institutions with great intentions, but just get swallowed up and or just beat down to the fact uh, or to the point where they're just ineffective or just so worn out. Mm-hmm. So I guess my question, I know that's a lot, but this is such <laughs> an excellent conversation. My apologies. But I'll just end with the question and just say, you know, how, how can we vet internally? Um, how can we vet internally? in terms of, you know, checking, again, the ideology, short of, again, a a Trump-style, you know, Muslim or America test, right? But how do we vet ideologies and not just put folks in positions because they need jobs, but how do we vet ideologies or community-wise vet folks before they go into law enforcement or before they go into uh, the judicial system to to raise us up collectively? James Farmer? Four minutes. So I agree with... I agree with both of your points, uh, your, you know, your initial comments. And in terms of your question, I think we have to – I want to change law enforcement. I want to be clear about that. I'm not saying we don't work on that. I'm just saying we don't look at changing the racial composition of the police as a way of getting there. Now, in terms of how do we try to transform law enforcement, and, and part of it I think would be to do that vetting that you're describing, I really think it's two things. One, you have to have leadership. Um, law enforcement – uh, police uh, departments are top-down departments. And you have to have leadership that's committed to making these sorts of reforms. I mean, there was just an article recently in the paper about the Camden, New Jersey police, and a police chief there who has told his department, for example, listen, stop writing $250 tickets for minor things because in a city where the average person makes $13,000 a year, a $250 ticket can be devastating and lead to a, a cycle of recrimination and getting sucked into the criminal justice system. So that's at the leadership level. And then you want to have that leader have those same values applied down to hiring. The other thing that I think can happen is community groups can play a more active role in trying to recruit people who share those values to join law enforcement. Now, again, it has to be to join an apart- a department that has the right vision. But assuming you have the right leadership at the top, then what you need is rank-and-file officers, right, who share that vision. And that's one of the big challenges that transformative leaders have that want to be transformative is they can't, they, you know, they inherit a culture that's oppositional to them. So if we can do that to front leadership at the top and then try to supply that leadership with a quality of person who shares those commitments, I think we can see change over time. A very quick call here. Doug, you're on the air, but we, we're almost out of time because uh, uh, James Foreman has to uh, go to another interview. Hi, James Foreman. It's uh, Professor Doug Colbert calling. How are you? Um, Good. I have a quick question. When you did your research, did you have opportunities to speak to judges to learn, you know, we, I'm sure you experience that some of the black judges are among the toughest as well as among the most sensitive. And I'm wondering whether judges have been able to tell their story about whether they feel they were selected because of their toughness or they grew harder on sentencing in bail once they took the bench. 
Hmm, interesting question. Wow, that's a really good question. I'm because I I hear that we're short on time. I'm going to not give it the 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 attention it deserves, but just to say. I only talk to a couple of judges. It's hard to get judges to really have conversations with you because of, you know, the nature of the, the requirements of their job. I did t- speak to a couple of retired judges, and I sp- spoke to a number of former prosecutors. I don't, but I didn't do it in any kind of systematic way, um, and I do think that's a really important topic. It's just one that I didn't explore deeply. So, which would be an interesting thing to explore another day. Let me close out with this question. You, you, you open with the story of Brandon. You end with a, uh, the story of Dante Highsmith and and what happened with Mr. Thomas, which I thought found fascinating. And, of course, you spent a lot of time with Sandra Dozier, and, and I, could, I could name a dozen other people you have made stories about. The whole book's about human stories in the midst of this, which makes it different and not just a polemic, which I think is really important. But what about those bookends, and where does that take you next? Well, the reason I wanted to end with the Dante story uh, was a couple. First of all, he— he ended up being back in front of the same judge who who oh, who Brandon was in front of. So that was right. significant to me. Right. But also because Dante spoke to this question of violence versus nonviolence. We've gotten to a moment in our country where a lot of criminal justice reformers, including President Obama, spoke about nonviolent drug offenders and said the way we're going to solve our criminal justice crisis is by focusing on them. And they're very dismissive of what of violent offenders. They say, you know, I don't have a lot of sympathy for them. And I really want to challenge that narrative. So that's why I close out the 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 book with the, with Dante's story. I don't know if I have time to to share it, but you'll cut me off when you when you need no, to cut you, me off. You have to run. So you have to get another interview go to. That's why I was pushing it. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, no, let me finish then with <laughs> let me tell you Dante's story because it's very important to me. You know, I say in the book that I get I get this nonviolent violent offender distinction until I met Dante. And I use him as an example because he committed a violent offense. He was an armed robber. He he robbed a man at a bus stop uh, in Washington, D.C., armed with a knife. And he was found on the scene, arrested shortly thereafter with the knife. He was guilty. He told me he was guilty. He confessed to the police. We didn't have a defense. So my only option was to go talk to the victim of the crime, a man by the name of Mr. Thomas. I call him Mr. Thomas in the book. I changed some of the names for to protect their privacy. Mr. Thomas was a laborer. He was a hard-working, working-class guy in D.C. Right? Nobody deserves to be robbed, but Mr. Thomas least of all. And you could see him in some ways, like you could see the harshness of the system in D.C. as being motivated by a desire to protect people like Mr. Thomas. So I go to talk to him and I tell him Dante's story and I tell him how Dante's mother had been addicted to drugs and how he really in a lot of ways had to had to raise himself and how he had a lot of potential. He had gotten caught up with a gang in the neighborhood and they had told him go do this robbery as kind of a rite of initiation and he had done it. But he was sorry and he apologized to the police on the night of. And I asked Mr. Thomas for his forgiveness, and I told him we had found a program for Dante, a job training program. Dante is really good with his hands, incredible woodworker. And I told him we had found a program in like a storefront church with a pastor. It had a counseling component. I thought it was going to be perfect for Dante. And he had been turned away from so many programs because his conviction was for a violent offense, armed robbery. We got him into one, but now Mr. Thomas had to agree, or else this judge I knew wasn't going to go along with it. And Mr. Thomas, you know, he he thought on it, and he said, I'll get back to you. Every day from the time I left his house until sentencing, I thought about him, and I thought about, you know, what's he going to decide? 
And when I got to court on the morning of Dante's sentencing, I saw Mr. Thomas in the hallway and he pulled out of his pocket two pieces of paper. One was the confession that Dante had made to the police, which I had given to Mr. Thomas because I wanted him to see Dante had confessed right then on the night of. This wasn't something his lawyer had come up with. And then the letter that Dante wrote uh, apologizing in more detail. And Mr. Thomas pulled those out and he said, you know, Mr. Foreman, you asked me to forgive your client. And he paused and he said, you know, I can't do that. I'm not ready to do that. He said, but I am trying. And he went into court and he told the judge he would go along with the program. The prosecutor was furious. The judge was surprised. But the judge did it. And Dante, you know, got into that program. And I I never heard anything more from him because one of the things as a public defender is your clients that do well, the ones that don't get rearrested, you don't see them again, (laughs) typically. And then years later, I'm in D.C. and I'm walking down the street and I hear someone, I hear Mr. Foreman. And I look up, it takes me a minute, but I realize eventually that it's Dante. He's grown up. It's been over a decade. He's, he's got a hard hat on. He's like kind of beefed up. And he comes down to talk to me. And I wanted to talk forever. I want to sit down and have coffee, have a meal, because it's so exciting to see somebody who's doing well. But, of course, I'm the lawyer. For him, he was trying to kind of get it over a little more quickly because I reminded him of a powerless moment in his life. But he gave me a story quickly, and he told me that he had struggled, but he had made it through the program. It had been hard to find a job, but he had eventually gotten one. He had not been rearrested, and now he was working, and he had a son of his own. Short conversation, and he left. And I always thought from that day on, that's a violent offender. So when we talk about labels, when we say this person is this or this person is that, let's move beyond the labels and look at the actual individual stories. And the thing I want to say is that everyone has a story. People sometimes say to me, oh, well, that's Dante's story. You got to know him. Well, I got to know his story, but everybody has a story. And if we will open our hearts and open our minds to listen to those stories, then we can reintroduce some amount or introduce some amount of humanity into our criminal justice system. James Foreman Jr., it's a pleasure to have you with us here. Uh, Thank you for having me. Really, he's a professor of law at Yale Law School, former clerk for Sandra Day O'Connor, co-founder of the Maya Angelou Public Charter School. Tonight, you can meet and talk with James Foreman Jr. Uh, He will be speaking for OSI Baltimore's Talking About Race series, beginning tonight at 7 p.m. at the University of Baltimore School of Law. So show up, be part of it. These are always great conversations, uh, and they'll have even more time with James Foreman Jr. tonight. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, James. Look forward to having you back on the show. Thank you for having me. Take care. We have to take a very short break, and when we return, we will be talking about national politics with our roundtable. Stay with us. <laughs> 